how buying cars secondhand has changed over the course of our lifetime. Knowledge and controversy all ride in the same seat. Buckle up and hang on for the ride. Now for your host of No Driving Gloves, John Viviani. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Uh, not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm hanging in here, trying to get back into this groove of making podcasts. I enjoy it so much, but it's definitely fighting to get it back in the schedule and and such. Oh, I'm looking up something really quick I look, I saw today, and I want to get the details right because I tried to tell the story earlier, and I kind of got it wrong. I thought it was an interesting thing that... Um, I drive a ton, so I listen to a ton of podcasts, and I've kind of changed up the podcasts I've been listening to a little bit, a little bit less producing podcast podcasts and getting a little bit back more into cars and tech. And I'm listening to King, Kim Commando today, and it turns out this story kind of hit hit the news back uh, May 14th, 2020. But I imagine it slipped under a lot of people's radar. It's not what our topic's going to be tonight, but I just found this fascinating. Do you realize... There is a, they call it an elite team of sniffers employed by Audi to ensure that their cars don't smell bad. I mean, I, I could see that. It's not totally out of the realm of what I believe the Germans are up to, but how exactly do they go about that? Part of their quality control, I guess. Uh, apparently, they ha- since 1985, Audi has employed... Uh, chemists claim to have extremely functional senses of smell and they work on and smell the interior of Audi vehicles and basically focus on the new materials being introduced to make sure they fit well and work well with older materials uh, to ensure that there's a new car smell. It's just odd. They do a grading scale. There's six levels from odorless to unbearable, and they sniff everything that goes into a car. The glass, the ceramics, the metals, I guess fabrics. I guess you're going to throw in adhesives and everything else that is used. I just kind of found that a interesting job, not something I never thought of in the automotive world. You know, I've heard stories about there's people that are employed to eat dog food to try dog food, but yeah, and make sure the dog food tastes like I guess like they say it tastes or tastes like dog food. I'm not sure, but hmm. you know they smell <laughs> these people they they smell things. All the pictures in the these news articles are them sniffing steering wheels and seats and glove boxes or smelling things in jars. It's huffing outies. Yeah. I can't imagine the, the process for applying for that job, what exactly they'd be looking for in you, but how you prove that you're an elite sniffer. That's, that's beyond me. 
<laughs> this is getting a little off car, but it's a little interesting to me because I don't know if you know how your nose functions. This is something I've learned in the cigar world that only one nostril of your nose technically is working at one point at, at one time. This each side can actually have a slightly different sense of smell or sensitivity to smell. And it's done so that whatever the smell receptors, I, I'm not a, whatever you would call a um, smell doctor. On one side of my nose, I really can't smell anything. I have no sense of smell in it. The other side, eh, it does okay. And, you know, how it's tied to taste and everything. But this, uh, the smell receptors tire. So as they tire, that side of the nose turns off and the other side turns on and it alternates throughout the day. And that's like when, why you're, when you sniff a cigar, you sniff it with mo both nostrils because you're never really sure which side, I guess, of your nose is working. And do these people have identical senses of smell in each nostril or can they only well, only my right nostril is working right now. So I, I need, you know, I need to take the next 20 minutes off until it swaps. You don't want to tire one out or maybe it's uh one of them's for more faint sense and one of them's conditioned for very strong sense. I don't know. It's like a sequential twin turbo system. One spools up at low RPM and the other's at a, uh, at high RPM. I think there's both supposed to be sensitive, you know, we just don't work together. I don't know how, what, what automotive system that would be relation to, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of weird stuff. I'll dive into here on no driving gloves. You can go to no driving gloves.com, get some of the back episodes, find our store with some products to buy, subscribe to the podcast. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram, and eventually we're going to get some of this stuff rolling. And I'm going to ask the audience a question. I might have asked this a year or two ago, and I'm going to get back to it. I said something on Facebook and got a lot of positive response and some comments back about going back to doing this day in automotive history. But I'm trying to decide, should I do that as a one-minute podcast every single day? Would you mind getting a one-minute podcast in your feed, or should that be a different channel no driving gloves so that you can subscribe to it or not i don't know listeners send us an email at producer at no driving gloves.com let me know what you think of that it's definitely going to show up in social media but i kind of would like to do it audio knock some of these things out tell you a little story about this day in automotive history so what you had a topic you wanted to bring up tonight brian and i kind of i instantly liked it it goes to no driving gloves. As I said in a little introduction episode I did, we're trying to get back to these evergreen topics and discuss things. You want to fill us in and tell, explain to me exactly what your thought process was on it, and we'll go from there. Things car-related that's nearest to my heart is just window shopping endlessly. As far back as, you know, getting closer to driving age and going on Craigslist, seeing what's around, seeing what I thought my first car would be. I think at the time I wanted a, I think I wanted a, like a '90s Jeep Cherokee of some sort. I thought that'd be my first car, but now it ended up being a Saturn. So, you know, take what you get. But I've never had a Saturn, but I've had a '90s Jeep Cherokee over here in this window because I just found it the other day. I was looking for something on one of my old hard drives. I found the, the list up until 2012 of all the cars I've owned. 
I don't have the years I've owned it. I actually don't have it on this list. I'm gonna have to add it in every, and that's weird. I go back to these lists, and because when I had my 03 Chevrolet S10 and it was so lowered, I did buy a Jeep, Jeep Cherokee. I can't remember. It was a '97, I believe it was. Hmm. Great, great little truck. I re I really enjoyed it. Hated the Wrangler we owned at the time, also, but really liked that uh, Jeep. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> No, no problem. Okay. But yeah, I mean, as far back as, you know, my lifetime goes, it's all been pretty much internet based. I would say besides that, you know, looking through maybe a Hemmings catalog, someone gave me at times, but it's mostly, you know, Craigslist. Facebook marketplace wasn't until later, but it was Craigslist. And at the time, eBay auctions, that was the premier car auction, which seems kind of kind of tough to see today. I mean, a lot of cars in there are, you know, five or six pictures, a one paragraph description. And it kind of seems crazy to me that, you know, you'd consider spending a large amount of money on something with so little detail over the internet compared to what we have now, you know, in a lot of other online auctions. Bring a trailer or if you don't have 500 pictures, oh, yeah. you're not going to get a listing. No, if there's not, you know, 37 pictures of the undercarriage, someone's gonna be like, there's rust in the spot. I know it. And just hamper your entire auction, but so yeah, I find that interesting because you said back before I was driving and I was looking for my first car, and you're checking Craigslist in that. Back when you were checking Craigslist, I was in college for a this was 95-ish. I was in college for my modern automotive technology degree and had a, a teacher, uh, Professor John Thorpe, drove a 86 Dodge, not Dodge, Chrysler uh, Laser in the purple over gray. Real you know, cool car at the time. Still a few years old at that point. He said he wanted us to do a paper using the Internet because he really felt the Internet was something that was going to catch on and become important. You haven't lived a day of your life without the Internet, right? <laughs> not really. I can tell you... It was probably 14 or 15, I think, when I really got into, quote, shopping for cars. Yep. And for me, it was this thing called the trading post. They were 50 cents. They were, you know, 40 pages long. They came out once a week, either on Tuesday or Wednesday. They Nothing but classified ads. Printed on newsprint. That's what they used to print newspapers on for those really young listening to the show. And there was always a section, biggest section of the, the trading post was always the cars. And you'd go, you know, model years and, you know, you find the model. You know, there was no, I, I want a Dodge Rampage and, you know, typing it in and they just all appear. No, you had to uh, look through all the 82s and you had to look through all the 83s and you had to look through all the 84s. And then you had to go to the truck section and look for all, see if it was in the trucks. And then if it wasn't in the trucks, then you'd go to, you know, custom vehicles or on, on classified vehicles. And it definitely was a different world. And you say you go to eBay and there's six pictures in one paragraph. Mm -hmm. The trade and post was one picture and 20 words. Anything more than 20 words cost you 10 or 15 cents per word. Mm -hmm. And one of those words was your phone number, probably seven digits at the time. 
and you called the phone number and you made an appointment and you go, you know, you'd go see people kind of like, I guess, Craigslist people do and Facebook marketplace people do, but you actually went and met the person. It's not like you made the appointment and didn't show up. Yeah. Every now and then you'd miss an appointment, but it wasn't the rampant. When I list something on Facebook marketplace now, I got, I sold a couple of filing cabinets and I gave them away. But the catch was if you wanted them, you had to send me PayPal me $10 to make the appointment. And I would give you $10 on the spot when you came back. And believe it or not, I got three or four people to, to do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to, I stand them up and keep their 40 bucks, you know? So it helped guarantee that people would show up. Yeah. And of course, the first person bought them, blah, blah, blah. And I refunded everybody else their money. It's definitely changed a little bit. I went from this trade in post thing to 86, 87, I guess. It was that way for me until I bought this thing called the Web TV, which accessed the internet. And eBay, eBay really wasn't there. I spent a lot of time on the CRX discussion forums and there were cars for sale. And, you know, you go to your discussion forums and yeah. these were things that were line after line after line of how do I change the distributor on my CRX? And then 40 different people reply. And then there's another topic. And if you didn't check it every day, you'd lose tons of information. They were horrible on searching and things like mm -hmm. that, but cars would pop up for sale on there. And then I guess, you know, I do remember by 98 when I moved to Kansas, I was doing the eBay thing. What do you remember about those early days of eBay other than five pictures and a paragraph? Because um, that really your first introduction to online car buying and. Yeah. Yeah. As far as just, well, that was more just like window shopping, dreaming. Because you'd go on eBay and you'd be like, all right. Let's look at E30 M3s. Let's look at a you know 70 Camaro Z28. And it'd usually be somewhere you'd look at it and you'd be like, oh, this is some sky high price that no one's ever going to pay, but it's just kind of putting it out there. But there was that. And then I actually my my 3000 GT VR4 that I have currently, the previous owner, I think, bought it in eBay in 2008 or 2009. And he had like printed out what the listing looked like. And it, it was, yeah, literally five pictures a short paragraph and they're all just, you know, horrible photos from nowhere near the car at all. And it's, it's funny trying to imagine guessing at the time what the paint condition was and what the interior was like and the engine bay. And you, you really have no idea, much less, you know, an undercarriage picture to see if it's rusty or what. When he, do you know when he bought that car on eBay, was this a car he was buying out of Nevada or Iowa or Mississippi, or was it still reasonably local that he could go look at it before he purchased it? I would say it was a little too far out of the range of looking at it. It was probably like four or five hours from, from Buffalo where he lived and where I live. So he definitely, I don't think he looked at it at all before buying it. And I don't know exactly what he paid. Cause he, you know, he took a picture when it was still showing reserve, not met. Cause that's the other thing with eBay. As soon as, the auction's over. You just have the screen showing the car, maybe what it sold for in one picture, and then all the description and that is gone. Unlike you know a lot of bring a trailer auctions and other similar websites today. 
I haven't looked at a bring a trailer auction recently after it's concluded, but I remember back on eBay that you would, even after it was concluded, you go back and search and you, the whole listing was still there. I'm sure I'm thinking 2000, 2001, but I'm sure now that would be just so much data for them. If they kept every listing from eBay for the, the existence of eBay, that'd be 28 years of data. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big things I remember when I would get on eBay back in 98 and I would get on eBay every single night and had my computer in one corner of the living room and my ex-wife would sit on the couch watching TV. Probably one reason she's my ex-wife. And I would go through every single listing under Lotus, buying all this collectible Lotus stuff. The opening page on eBay would be, we have over 2 million items and then it was, we have over 2.5 million items and 2.9 million items. Now I probably could go search Lotus and there'd be 2 million items in Lotus alone mm-hmm. uh, instead of the entire site. It was, you know, to me, it's interesting how it grew. I mean, I bought a lot of stuff on eBay, but I I don't think I've I ever bought a car on eBay. I lusted after a bunch of cars on eBay. I did bid on, I know I bid on the 1976 Chevette Woody that was on there. Oh, yeah. And I got out at 4700 and ended up selling for like 6100 or something like that. Um, low mileage, 1976 Chevette, Chevette Woody. I thought that would be cool. That was, I guess, my introduction to, you know, internet shopping was eBay. I I didn't even think Craigslist was around at that point. They were going to swap meets and you mentioned Hemmings motor news Mm -hmm. and, you know, Hemmings originally started out as a magazine where you, for model T's and model A's. And then somebody had the radical idea of let's expand it to everything. And in its heyday, 95, even 2000, you know, it was a 400 page book you got every month and nothing but cars for sale. You know, now you get it and it's 200 pages maybe. And half of it is color, glossy magazine articles. Mm-hmm. And nobody lists their car in Hemmings anymore because it was, you know, it was always a process. I'm going to sell my car. And then you take a picture and you write your description. And again, you're buying it with one or two pictures or listing it. it even if you did that, and I think a picture cost extra. Or you could buy an eighth-page ad or a quarter-page ad or really, really fancy people could buy a full-page ad. And you'd describe the car. And then, of course, you'd get a phone call and you'd discuss it. And then maybe you could go look at it or you get a buddy to go look at it. And everything's done by phone and you know digital cameras. <clears throat> I got my first digital camera in 98. So not everybody had digital cameras at that point in time email pictures so you had to wait for you know regular pictures but you list the car you send everything into hemmings and then three months later your ad comes out i don't even know how you could wait three months i mean right now i had a buddy today post he's a realtor and stuff but and he put his mini countryman up for sale and within six hours it was sold yeah you know oh yeah if you had even done the trading post you would have decided, oh, I'm going to sell it, come up with your ad, and you got to wait a week for it to come out. 
you know, there's none of this six hour sales. And I had a, another friend sold his Mustang GT and two hours, put a post up on Facebook. Hey, I've decided it's gone. Uh, another friend. And it's really odd. He's got some, he's got some interesting cars and he put his, you know, it's a really rare car and he was, he was looking to be the exclusive importer uh, of this little sports or Zenos or Zenos. Yeah. I remember and, those. And he had like the first one in the country and he popped it, you know, finally decided it's got to go. He's got a Rivian SUV, clear up some garage space. So he sold that. Again, he just set it on Facebook in the morning and by early afternoon, somebody had bought it. And now he's done the same thing with his Lotus Elise. It's, okay, this is what I got. This is the condition it's in. It's pretty cheap because it needs a ton of work. Three hours later. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. <clears throat> everything's instant anymore. Uh, it's just incomprehensible. And you grew up with the internet, so I don't think you even... Can you even comprehend the idea of waiting three months for your car had to come out or waiting a week for your car had to come out? Or instead now, if you decided, oh, no, I, I need $15,000 tomorrow, mm-hmm. you pop your 3000 GT up on Facebook or something and pop, probably have it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As opposed to, I really I really need the money in 48 hours, but this ad's not going to come out for three months. <laughs> Yeah, cars are a lot more of a, a liquid asset now, you know, collector cars probably than they've ever been. But yeah, nothing nothing good really lasts on Craigslist or Facebook for more than a day or so. I think I bought my my 99 Forerunner I have right now. That I saw posted, I think it was posted 30 minutes before I saw it. And it was a good price. And I just immediately called up the person who was selling it. It was an older gentleman. And I'm just like, yep, I'm going to come and look at it. He's like, wow, that was that was quick. I'm like, oh, yeah. You can't hesitate. I mean, I think we were talking, well, we were talking a little bit, and I told you, you know, I had this uh, 97 Jeep Cherokee. I bought that on Craigslist, and it was one of those things. I had been looking for a winter car to drive instead of my lowered S10. And, you know, it just popped, you know, Craigslist, call on it, get right over there to buy it. I think it cost me $800. I had to put an exhaust on it, so I had, like, 1300 bucks into the whole thing, Austin brakes and thing ran great. Sold it from spring, rolled around, probably should have kept it, sold it to the um, woodworker at the restoration shop. I was working at and he drove it for years. I bought my CR, my silver CRX off of Craigslist. And that was another one that CRX is even at that point, whatever that was, 2005, 2006. I'm really sitting here thinking, boy, I did end up buying a lot of stuff. I listed when I sold my Europa, I listed it on remember it was Craigslist or eBay, but ended I was in DC and I ended up selling it to Northern Pennsylvania. And that guy's done a gorgeous, fabulous restoration to that car. Took him like five years to do, but we've, you know, obviously stayed in touch, but got my caterum. My ex-wife sent me something off of a, uh, a Lotus Forum. Ironically, it might be the same Lotus Forum that was founded by the guy that we just talked about selling a Xenos and his Lotus. But, you know, she sent me this thing with a kind of a joke statement. And I told her, yeah, a couple of days. I think she told me about it on Monday or Tuesday. And I said, I think Thursday I flew from D.C. to 
Fort Lauderdale to look at the car. And, you know, you said it might've been a four or five hour drive, just a little bit out of the, you know, I've always believed that on the internet, you know, you've got to go look at it. And if you don't have time to go look at it, I, for years worked with a, a, a national company when I was doing appraisals and that, and I did a lot of pre-purchase inspections for people that didn't have the time to, you're looking at, I don't care if it's a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollar car, or if it's a twenty thousand dollar car. It's worth three hundred bucks for somebody to go look at it, independent third party to go look at it. Because twenty thousand the guy spending twenty thousand dollars, that's a lot of money to him. The guy spending two hundred thousand dollars, that's still a lot of money to him. I don't care how much money you have. I always believe in the pre-purchase and checking out all this stuff online because Sure. Where did you Where did you say you found your three thousand? Or did you? My first one I got on Craigslist, and that was I'd had my Saturn for a few years at the time. I had a two thousand two Saturn SL one that my uncle gave me because it broke on him, something pretty minor, and I fixed it. And that was the that was my first car in a beater. But I kind of got to the point where I was in my second year of college. I'd saved up a, a decent amount of money just working in like a warehouse in the summer, and I just. I didn't really want anything particular, but I kind of just kept an eye out for whatever popped up on Craigslist. And that was my first one was, yeah, it was a 94 SL five speed came up and I think it had been on there for a while at $6,000 and they dropped it to 4,500 bucks. And that's when I saw it. And like that day I kind of went and looked at it. Didn't even really know how to drive stick. So it was more learning how to drive stick on the test drive at the time, but that was a good car. And that's where that one came from. The second one, was found in a much more old way because I just heard from word of mouth that someone had one that they wanted to sell. I, I had sold my SL and about a month later, I heard that from a some other gentleman in the AACA that had had a 91 SL that he bought new that it's a super clean car. He's like, yeah, one of my friends went to buy some old car parts from this one guy and he saw in his garage that he had a I think a Dodge Stealth the three, and two 3,000 GTs. He didn't really know the trim or the condition or anything about them, but he just told him about it and ended up giving me the contact information. And it turned out to be, you know, the perfect car that I was looking for. But I don't, I don't know how many cars sell from just word of mouth where someone's like, yeah, maybe I'll be ready to sell it. Yeah, I, you know, for the right amount of money before I put it online. I don't know how much of that there is anymore unless you're someone you're really close with. I think there's a lot more of it than we're aware of, and that's where the deals are had. I've had opportunities. Yeah, go do appraisals. You need to go do it on a collection that the family's looking to get rid of. And then they've got that information. To, okay, now I know what a fair price is. Then they they hint to a couple of friends that, you know, always said, hey, I really would like this car. I really like that car. Um, you just, just always keep your ear to the ground. Mm-hmm. It's like my uh, 62 Chrysler. It's for sale. I don't have it advertised anywhere in that. But if the right person hears about it and calls me up, gives me the right number, which isn't a lot of money if anybody's interested, it'll go. Just I, I haven't got around to listing it for sale anywhere. I think, there, I think there's a lot of cars like that that people just don't, you know, they're either too old to list. They don't comprehend. They don't want to deal with it. It's I'll get around to it. They tell somebody and it eventually lands in the right lap. It's like, I think it's Derek's Peerless is, 
you know, he was sitting at home or maybe he was at work not doing anything and got a phone call from a collector who was looking at this collection who said, hey, I'm standing here in front of this car. I don't want it, but it'd be the perfect car for you. And, you know, that's how, you know, Derek ended up buying his, you know, this collector restorer was contacted. I'm not using any names. I can't, I think Derek's used names before. And, you know, pretty famous guy in that. And, but he knew this is, was up Derek's alley and it was probably going to be in Derek. Maybe he knew the price, you know, be Derek's price range. I don't know if this gentleman knew Derek's budget or not, but it would be the perfect car, you know, down Derek owns it. And there's a couple other cars and, you know, even Derek's collection that he's gotten through word of mouth as opposed to, you know, finding it online or whatever. I think people started to grow a little bit comfortable with eBay and that, but I still think there was some hesitation. Craigslist kind of went its own way. Facebook Marketplace got popular, but now you get on Facebook Marketplace and you look up something and all of a sudden this, you know, 2023 Corvette Z06 is a, you know, you can pick it up for three grand. You know, there's so many things listed like that or, you know, phishing, hacking, scamming stuff. Facebook really needs to patrol. That's a whole another conversation for something else. But, but what's really got me irritates me. I used to go to this website and I don't know if you did. It might've been when you were, you would have been a, you would have been a teenager at the time. Did you go to bring a trailer prior to the auctions? Not quite. I was like just in the time of uh, when they started their auctions, probably around like 2015 or so. But it still was like half the website was them posting links from Craigslist and eBay. So had a little bit of that. So yeah, they when they first started, they had four or five cars for sale, didn't they? And then everything else was. Like you said, links from they literally were cars that you needed to bring a trailer for. Yeah. Now they're cars that you literally need to bring a trailer for, but they're perfect examples as opposed to the worst examples. Yeah, it's a brand new Corvette. Someone's flipping or something like that. It's amazing to me how that site has exploded. I've sold a few cars through Bring a Trailer uh, for clients. And that was pre-pandemic. I haven't done anything post-pandemic, but I've got a scheme going on right now. To me, it was okay. There were 20 cars, and they would post, you know, put up 20 cars every other day. And it's 60 cars to keep track of. Now they've got, what, 300 cars at any given time they're selling. And Oh, God, yeah. You know, I just heard an interview with Randy and... They did over a billion dollars in sales last year. They just sold their hundred thousandth car, um, the two forty. Bring a trailer owned two forty that they sold was the hundred thousandth car listed on Bring a Trailer. I mean, it's absolutely exploded. It's nothing like it was before, and I really miss the old Bring a Trailer website. I wish somebody could bring back that. I can't remember. There was another one that. They never went the auction route, but I'd get the daily email and it was those Craigslist posts and things like that. Yeah, there's like a barnfinds.com, yeah. I think. Yeah, that one. That's what I was thinking of is barn finds. And of course, uh, Chris Harris has started his auction site over Allah Bring a Trailer over in Europe. Obviously, we can buy here, but 
most of his cars are primarily European. And Doug DeMuro Miro on YouTube, he's got cars and bids that he just took $30 million of VC yeah. money. And I just heard an interview with him why he did it and things. And it just made it easier for his life to manage the business and things. And now all of a sudden he's popped up that he owns his dream cars, Porsche, you know, CGT. Mm-hmm. These sites, I mean, the money that people are paying for cars that they don't see and the archive that's being created in, you know, you post your car and then experts on that car comment on that car and previous owners of that car comment on that car. And what's his name? Uh, Vin Wiki. Um, oh, um. I can't think of his name. Even though he's not selling cars, the Vin or the VinWiki app. I mean, VinWiki I know is a YouTube channel, but VinWiki is actually an app, which is a Wikipedia of VIN numbers on exotics, and what can be done with that and comparing it. You know, using it to search cars on Bring a Trailer or mm-hmm. Cars and Bids or um, I can't remember what Chris Harris's is called. And, you know, you can go in there and you enter the VIN number and then you can find out, well, it was on bring a trailer here and then it was on eBay here and then it was at this dealer here. And, you know, it's a yeah. good this. What's your feeling on it? Is the information that's available to the consumer or the buyer that much better that people are comf- more comfortable spending the money or is it the quality of car or have the sites become that trustworthy or people just that careless with their money now what's your thoughts yeah it could be a little bit everything i remember the name it's ed bullion that's the that's that's the guy's name but yeah it's definitely a combination of it all i mean bring a trailer it's even besides you know the the money thing sell for on there it's crazy how just useful of a resource it is for anyone just looking for a car i mean you can go back through their old auctions they have it plotted out the sale prices and things that didn't hit reserve and then Every car that's on there is still on there. So you can go on there and look through hundreds of pictures, read all the comments. You know, a car gets posted, people are immediately like, oh, this car didn't meet reserve at Mecham Auctions like two months ago or something like that. And particularly with like a lot of the, uh, it's become a big thing with imported cars like R34, the final generation Skyline GTRs. There's a lot of them that have got posted on there. And then within, you know, I don't know, the first day of auctions, you'll see people come in and be like, this car was like salvaged and every single body panel on it was changed out from this Japan auction sheet. And they post the link to some forum page of something and everyone's like, whoa. And so I I think it is a place you can be pretty comfortable knowing there's a week and that, you know, sometimes the comments can get pretty, you know, pretty vicious if in particular situations. So it, it, it does seem like a pretty comfortable place to buy a car, but I think people are also careless with their money. There's, there's definitely that. I mean, it's, I remember one of the big ones that stuck out to me is I don't know if it was like t- probably 2021. There was like those, uh, eighties Toyota Corollas. They call me, you know, the 86. Mm-hmm. There was one of those. And I think it's still one of the highest selling ones in that site. It sold for 40 grand and it had like, 150,000 miles. It was like visibly rusty. And it's one of those you look at and you're like, why? Someone's like, oh, I'm going to restore it. I'm like, well, 
okay, you're going to spend $100,000 restoring one of these. It's like, it's crazy. But people definitely get out of hand. And you look at some of them where you're like, oh, it was just a bid between three different people for half the final sale price of what it was. Yeah, that's one thing I do like about bringing a trailer. And I assume the other auctions have that. And that's the, um, if there's a bid in the last three, what is it, three minutes or something, the, yeah. the auction gets extended and it gets extended. I had a snipe program on eBay, I'll <laughs> be honest. It got to be, you had to have a sniping program on eBay to, to win anything worth a damn. Because all the good bids came in with three seconds left. <laughs> And I always petition eBay, you need to be able to extend the auction. And they might have picked up a little bit there. But you're right that f the community that's on Bring a Trailer and watches that and passionately handles it and know, you know, knows the cars. The problem is, of course, you get the one guy on there that thinks he knows the car. And oh, you yeah. know, he can totally screw up somebody's auction on a legit car. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said, and I mean, it gives the auction companies a big run for their money, and that's another thing that's changed. I interned at Barrett-Jackson in the early 2000s in uh, Arizona, and at the time I was doing it, it had just, it might have been the you know first time I did it was 2000, and I think they, they started broadcasting Barrett-Jackson in like 98 on Speed Vision. That, and starting to televise Barrett-Jackson, I think helped explore, explode and increase collector car values. And of course they did it at the right time with the home prices escalating. And I always called, you know, the blue chip collectibles, the Ferrari GTOs and McLaren F1s, the 250 Narts, uh, Maserati bird cages. They've always been there. They're do's and do's and burks. But you saw a real solid buildup of muscle cars and that. And the people were going, well, that people are coming in, you know, coming to age. I mean, they're turning 50, they're retiring. They're also just about paying their house off or the equity in their home has went up. And I always call them home equity cars because it wasn't such a big deal to borrow, a, you know, I'm going to take another hundred, you know, borrow a hundred grand against the house to buy this car. And I think that helped inflate the prices. And then of course everything collapsed and everything came back. And, but as you know, Barry Jackson, you know, just, just every January for two or three years, and then they would have another auction televised, then another auction televised. And now you can't turn on motor trend TV a lot of the time without having, you know, a Mecham auction on or something. So I think televising of the auctions has helped. It's sure a different world to buy a used car. But what I guess I'm going to say, I think it's a little bit odd. One thing eBay did is they proved rare things aren't rare. You know, it's like the, is it the blue label or gold label or something? Disney VHS tapes that, prior to eBay were just f tremendously expensive. And for the first few years of eBay, it were tr they were expensive. But then it got to be the point you could always go on eBay and always search for them and always find a whole collection. So they weren't rare. They just immediate circle of 10 friends didn't own them. And when you saw, them, oh, I got to have these. Mm -hmm. And it did the same thing with 
whatever um, the little glass figurines, I can't think of what they're called or uh, certain Emmett Kelly clowns say, or I mean, some this just massive production, but you only got one friend who's a clown collector. I mean, so, you know, oh, that's rare or something. And eBay, you know, eBay did that with all, all these collectibles, but with all these online car auctions and ways to buy a car and listings. And I mean, you can get on and you can go to, um, country classics in, um, Southern Illinois, just outside of, um, St. Louis. I can't think of town starts with an S you can go there. He's got a thousand cars anytime, always a cool dealership to drive by. And it's been hit by a tornado in the last five years and burned down in the last five years, but he's still got this massive inventory. And now he's got carports almost <laughs> over everything. Guess don't know what that's going to do. Guess he's expecting a hailstorm. I guess where I'm going is even cars that we thought were rare and have turned out to be they're everywhere. They're still increasing in value. I mean, how many twin turbo supers? I don't care if you're oh, yeah. are, are are out there, and people are paying crazy money for them. Mm-hmm. How many? You know, you you see in my world, you see a low mileage CRX for sale, and then it turns out, oh, guess what? There's another one with fewer, you know, and fewer and fewer and fewer miles. I have yet to see a zero mile CRX for sale anywhere. 10, 15,000 mile CRXs are pretty common now. I would think that would hurt the value. Um, what was it? The Integra Type R. And it actually sold at a physical auction for $141,000 and blew away the record price from Bring a Trailer. And I'm sitting here thinking, I could have bought one of those things for $23,000 brand new. I mean, <laughs> That was sitting in the thing at the, you know, on, on the Acura lot back in 02 when they were new. It's opened up this world of buying cars. I'm going to ask you the question. Got to get you more talkative and comfortable than learning how to shut me up. <laughs> Has it made the world a better place for buying cars? Eh, it's made it a little tougher in a lot of cases. I think, you know, you'd, you'd see one car that has a good result. I, I think what you're talking, there's like one the first like low mileage condition, anything to come out of the woodwork, it'll have some crazy result. And then everyone in the comments is like, Oh, I'm going to up my policy on my classic car insurance. And then you got everyone thinking that their car, that's not nearly in the same condition or not the same rare color trim level or something along that thinks their car is worth way more. So it does, it does make it tougher for cars to be affordable in a lot of cases, especially more attainable stuff. But I think in general, it, probably makes more cars survive. I think, you know, you, people see these large results and they're less likely to be like, oh, this car's not worth anything. I'm going to scrap it. I'm going to not care about it. So I think in in that aspect, it's made things better. But for affordability, it's it's made things a little tough. Do you think with what you just said, I don't know the answer and I don't know how I would answer this question. So if you say, I don't know, if... The circumstances were the same economically. If we did cash for clunkers now with this explosion of all this online collector car stuff, as opposed to doing 
cash for clunkers back in 07, 08 when we did it, do you think it would be as well received as it was? Do you think a lot of the cars that were turned into bricks of metal, <laughs> I mean, turned in, turned in as clunkers, would have been turned in? I mean, the guy that turned in the uh, Buick GNX as a cash for clunkers car, hmm. do you think it might have prevented that car from being killed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a lot of stuff that hadn't quite reached the age of being collectible from like the 80s and 90s that definitely was killed off by that. So I I think for sure that'd be highly unlikely. Now, I, I mean, I could see a lot more mundane things, you know, being turned in now, but, you know, I don't think it'd be anything that anyone would really miss, you know, another 10 years down the line, but for sure. You're I saying things would go way Kia, Kia Rios and Cavaliers. Yeah, and, Kia Rio, a Nissan Altima, you know, something more regular. Rental cars. Yes. Yeah, fleet vehicles, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Chevrolet I think there's so many more. Yeah, there were so many more like just rare, obscure vehicles in the 80s and 90s, like one-year-only performance versions of cars, like, I don't know, an Isuzu Impulse RS Turbo. I don't know if you know what that is. Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge Isuzu yeah. guy. They made them one year and they probably were all just winter beaters in the Northeast. And by that point, everyone's like, well, I get $3,000 for this. I'll just, I'll just turn it in, whatever. It's too much of a pain, but stuff like that. I could definitely see being much more likely to be preserved now. I think people are just a lot more passionate in general about cars like that. It's much, I guess it's much easier to go, well, I've got this, Azuzu Impulse, you know, RS Turbo. Uh, the government will give me three grand for it. What it what's it worth? And now you can search it and all of a sudden yeah. it pops up on Bring a Trailer and I don't know what it paid for, you know. Oh, wait, got thirty-eight thousand dollars for one on Bring a Trailer. Mine's gotta be worth forty-five, even though it doesn't run. Yeah, trees exactly. laying laying across it. <laughs> it's like every every used car you know, at the very end of January, beginning of February is priced what it sold for at Barrett Jackson. Mm -hmm. Of course, some of the Barrett Jackson prices are becoming really reasonable on the Monday, Tuesdays of the auction. <laughs> kind of covered a lot of scope today. There's a lot of, the world has definitely changed on used cars and used car availability and the knowledge base. Go back 07, 08 podcasting was only three years old. I mean, there weren't really podcasts. There weren't YouTube. Didn't when did YouTube come out? 2008. Yeah. That sounds about right. 2008. Too. So there wasn't all these car things on YouTube and you know, we talk about it from cars. I'm sure this explodes into everything else from Teddy Ruxpin bears to knitting needles to, uh, I don't know. I want to say looms or farm equipment. And I'm sure this conversation, you could just replace some of the stuff we've said with whatever collectible you're into. You know, it's definitely changed a lot. I know what I think as a, a kind of asked this question, you said it made it a little bit rougher. I think it's changed things for the better. Yes. The prices are up there. They're exaggerated you got to have, you know, stupid money's being paid for some things. At some point, maybe some sanity will come back to this. 
I also think insane money was being paid before. It just wasn't as public. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go back to November 1993. A gentleman in town where I used to live got his 93 Viper. Well, no. November 1993. My dad got his 94 Viper delivered a week before Thanksgiving. Uh, let the dealership keep it for two weeks to display it behind ropes. Then he, you know, he took delivery of it. The same week he took delivery of it, a guy in town got his 93 Viper, bought used, you know, 100, 200 miles on it, paid a hundred grand for it. You know, he, he, he drove it a little bit more than my dad drove his. He drove it a hell of a lot more, but he paid. My dad pay, got a discount off sticker because he was such a regular customer at his Dodge dealer. Got his car three weeks before this other gentleman bought his for almost double sticker. Sticker on the cars were 56750 I think, at the time. And, you know, that my dad's car is still, still in the family. People were paying stupid money for cars... Back then, you know, there was always the I, the first car I remember stupid money is the Buick GNX and my bet subscription to Auto Week. And the number of them that were in the back was zero miles. And mm -hmm. I can't remember if they were 50, $35,000 cars for 50. I think that had to be it. Twenty-five dollars or $30,000 cars. And people were asking fifty dollars and $60,000 for them. And that's what they were worth for 30 years. And they fi you know, finally got a little bit of a buff. That's the first car I remember big money mm. being paid for. Then the Viper and the original Corvette ZR1. And it seems as we've went on more, you know, we, ha we had an episode a year ago about adjusted markups from dealership, which now everything has. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I was, that the whole story there was saying, I think the stupid money's always been there. It's just, it's I've always said expense is proportionate to income. And the way I break it down is if you make a hundred grand a year and you drive a $50,000 Lexus, if there's such a thing, even a, a $50,000 used Lexus, you've spent 50% of your yearly income on your transportation. If you make a million dollars a year and you go out and you buy a $400,000 Ferrari. Buffet, I think. Yeah. You've only spent, you, you've spent 40%. You've spent less of your yearly income on a car. Yeah, ex that's expenses proportionate to income. The more more you make, the more you can spend, and it less of an impact really. Mm -hmm. Ferrari, I still got six hundred grand to buy a house and eggs. <laughs> Lexus, I've got fifty grand to spend for a house and eggs. You really made me think, and uh, when you pop that topic up to discuss, I go, that's a lot of. There's a lot of change there. The funny thing is, is prior to the internet, we bought and sold cars basically the same from 1920 to then. 
we bought and sold cars differently from the time they were new to about the 20s because the 20s cars was one of the first things after homes to be able to be financed officially in a big on a big scale so that changed the way you could really buy you know buy a car probably henry ford's doing and being able to you know, that's why he did the $5 a day wage is he wanted his employees to be able to afford his car. Do you have anything to add to this since it was your topic and I, of course, dominated? Not really. No, I don't know. I have noticed things are settling down on that front a lot, especially when you look at like, not even bringing a trailer, once you start getting into like the cars and bids, Doug DeMuro's site, things are selling for a more reasonable price, generally speaking. You think they're selling for more reasonable on Doug's site as opposed to bring a trailer just because Doug's site doesn't have the following yet? The- yeah, I think it just said, I think there's just a different group of cars people look for on that site. I know his is, it's 80s and up, 80s to brand new, but there still is, you know, several hundred thousand dollar cars. But at the same time, if you're looking to buy, I don't know, a used like 10 year old Golf GTI, Civic Si, Super WX, you know, more common, attainable stuff what I see prices list for on like marketplace, things like that. I'm like, why do people still want so much money for that? And you see what they actually sell for. Like, Oh, okay. That person just has way too high of an asking price. Well, there's all that's, that's something that's always been the same. Yeah. There's the asking price and there's a selling price. Yeah. The, the no low ballers. I know what I have. (laughs) It would be nice. And that's something I think Vin, uh, Vin wiki does. Uh, You're able to track what the car sold for. Not what they asked for, what they mm-hmm. actually sold for. And that's something obviously Bring a Trailer does too, is this is what it sold for. And I think that's why people really like buying their cars at these collector car auctions is because they're selling for just about what they're worth. I always believe a car is worth the second highest bid. Yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. I had a great time chatting with you tonight. And uh, I guess I'm out of here. Yeah, sure thing, John. Same to you. Okay. This show was a part of the No Driving Gloves Network, produced and edited by John Viviani of Magic City Podcast, with voice work by Gary Conger. So until the next exit.